The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. Welcome back to The Christian Publishing Show. I'm your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. And one of the goals of The Christian Publishing Show is to help writers understand the publishing industry, to open up the veil, so to speak. And this is why I'm so excited to talk with today's guest. Stan Jantz is the president of the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association. He's also an author himself. He's co-authored 75 books with Bruce Bickle. And uh, Stan, welcome to The Christian Publishing Show. Thank you, Thomas. It's great to be with you and your audience. So what is the ECPA? ECPA stands for, as you said, the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association. So it's a trade group that represents Christian publishers, both in the U.S. and internationally. Uh, It was formed 45 years ago and really uh, started out to be a place where publishers could network together and meet and exchange ideas. And then over time, it has also uh, been known for supporting with conferences and also with information and research projects. So we try to bring what's the latest in publishing to our members, but also bring them together so that we can promote Christian publishing and Christian books. Tell us a little bit more about how you promote Christian publishing. Uh, what are some of the other activities you do to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, probably the, the the one that we call it under kind of advocacy is the title, is how we promote the books that are uh, written by Christian authors, published uh, by publishers that are part of ECPA, is to curate uh, every month a bestsellers list. Uh, what's interesting, Thomas, is today with the um, vast number of books, I think the, the latest number I've heard, if you include self-published titles, about a million titles a year that uh, are published. Uh, and many of those, if not all, come onto Amazon. And so when you're a, a browser looking for a title, it's just you're overwhelmed with the number of books out there. So what, what, has, what happens, and I do this too, is that we go to the bestsellers list. And what are people reading and what is selling across America? And so we publish, uh, and it's on our ecpa.org uh, website. You can access it there. Uh, it is our bestsellers list, and it gives you kind of a window into what's selling. And these are lists based on actual sales. So it's not publishers reporting, well, here's what our books were selling. It actually is, is curated by what used to be called Nielsen SoundScan. Uh, excuse me, Nielsen BookScan. Nielsen also does music, which is SoundScan, but Nielsen BookScan recently sold to uh, another company called NPD, which is irrelevant, but it's it's still BookScan is the brand, and they uh, gather information from hundreds of resellers, so everything from Amazon to Barnes and Noble and independent bookstores, to find out at the point of sale what is actually selling, and then these are. Um, uh, put into different types of lists. So you have nonfiction, you have fiction. In our space, in the in the Christian space, we do have a an overall top 50 overall list. We have um, a top 25 nonfiction uh, fiction list. We also do juvenile. We do uh, Bibles. And uh, and so it, it really brings what, what people are buying, not just in Christian bookstores, but also in the broader 
book market. So what that does, it just tells people what's selling and it helps people kind of make decisions uh, about uh, perhaps a book in a particular category that they want want to read. Uh, so that's probably the number one way that we advocate for books. But we also uh, produce uh, a couple of award programs that go on through the year. There's a nonfiction award program called the Christian Book Award, and then a fiction award program that we just uh, completed in Nashville last week called the Christie Award. And so both of those also bring awareness because through social media, we bring awareness to the award winners and which books were deemed to be uh, the best by judges that we bring together for both of these award programs uh, who read the books and uh, you know score them. And so there's also, in addition to sales, there's also this kind of excellence that uh, which books have been deemed to be the best books in their particular category. So we think those are good ways that uh, uh, you know we can make awareness for the Christian books, and uh, we're we're constantly trying to look for ways to improve that and to get these this information out to a wider audience. That's right, because not every best-selling book deserves to win literary awards, and not every award-winning book is a bestseller. Those capture two different pieces of data. And I, I do want to zoom in briefly on the bestseller list, because um, those of you listening may not know this, there's two kinds of bestseller lists. There are algorithmic bestseller lists and then curated bestseller lists. So what the ECPA does is more like what the panel at the New York Times does or the panel at USA Today, where they're looking looking at the data, but then they're bringing some human judgment to that. So they're not just regurgitating the data. Uh, there's some massaging of that and some tweaking. And if I could make one correction, I gave the website I gave you was for ECPA, which is our organization. And you could probably find it, but it's a little bit tougher. Let me give you the direct website for the Christian bestsellers list and also gives you the award-winning books too. So everything we're talking about is all in this, this uh, website. It's Christian Book Expo all one word, christianbookexpo.com. Um, and so there your your listeners will find everything from bestsellers to book awards. And also we feature sales awards. So those books that have hit a half a million or a million in sales over the lifetime of their publication. So it's a great resource for authors to look for. Because so I, I know as, as I have, when I because I still write books and you want to look at what are people interested in and, and seeing what, number one, as you said, Thomas, what is deemed by judges and, and critics to be the best books in terms of their literary value, but also those things that are selling. And often those are, are different. Uh, it just gives you a good window into what people are reading and what people are looking for in books. That's right. And we will have links to both of those in the show notes. So if you just scroll down in the app that you're listening to this podcast in, hopefully you're listening and uh, you subscribe and you're listening in a podcast app. And if not, I highly recommend CastBox. It's free and it's available on both uh, Android and iOS. It's a great way to subscribe to podcasts like this one. Um, but uh, yeah, going back to that bestseller list, the other way you could do this, and I'm glad you don't, which is the algorithmic way. That's what Amazon does. And Amazon's nice, uh, but the challenge for Amazon is that by updating every hour, it's really easy to game it. So if you get a whole bunch of your friends to all buy your book at 2 a.m. on a Sunday, you can take a screenshot where it's like, look, for an hour, I was the best-selling book at 2 a.m. on a Sunday. But that is not the same. And there's levels of bestseller status. And having humans kind of curate this, of like, okay, how long were you a bestseller for? Is this a fluke or are you actually moving numbers? Are you trying to game the system? And it's not to say that the New York Times bestseller list can't be gamed, right? It's been gamed famously, uh, but it's it's a lot harder and it's a more trustworthy uh, tool. 
I do want, want to change directions a little bit. So you do promotion in terms of awards and you know, the bestseller list, but you also uh, do work to educate um, authors and publishers. Talk to us a little bit about that. What do you do in ter- on the education front? We have just recently entered into this kind of direct contact with authors and educating them, and that was when we um, took on the Christie Award, which is will be in its 20th year next year. And this is a Christian award program for fiction and probably the most recognized title, and it's named for the novel Christie. In fact, last year was the 50th anniversary of the publication of Christie by Catherine Marshall and kind of sets a nice, both a popular and also literary book. And to, it, as you've been referring to, Thomas, it kind of hit both. It became a bestseller, but also was a, a well-written book and has kind of been a standard. So we just had this event in Nashville uh, at the uh, ca- on the campus of Lipscomb University, and we featured really two days, one day for publishing professionals and all those different aspects of what publishers do. So from acquiring books, from editing books, marketing, um, uh, production, design, reader engagement, the digital aspect of it, we do really 24 hours of intensive, about 42 seminars for publishers. And then we, we do kind of a bridge event. And this year it was Donald Miller. And if I could put a plug in for a book, Thomas, that you and your listeners would, I think, really find valuable. Donald Miller, uh, of course, he came to prominence with a, a book called Blue Like Jazz, probably 20, 25 years ago. But he has really developed a wonderful marketing uh, system based on story. In fact, his his company is called Story Brand. And I think you can go to his website, storybrand.com, or just look up Donald Middle Story Brand, you'll find it. But we had him as our closing speaker for this, what we call Publishers University. And then we actually opened also called The Art of Writing for Authors. And so Donald Miller is one of those guys, he can relate both to publishers and authors and everything in between. It was a wonderful segment, uh, an hour-long segment that uh, was featured uh, as, again, a bridge between these two conferences. And uh, and then we had three more sessions for just for authors, and it featured a panel of, of editors. Uh, it was called Mythbusters. What are those things that authors think publishers are looking for, but maybe they're not or could be true? Uh, we had a, uh, a panel of authors uh, that included Charles Martin and a new author, Carla Loriano, and Joanne Bischoff, who is, has kind of gone back and forth between self-publishing and also working with traditional publishing. And that, was, uh, that panel was moderated by uh, an editor from Howard Publishing. You've made me curious. I, I do want to know what a couple of those myths were, if you don't mind sharing. What, were, what are some of the top ones that you remember? Oh, gosh, I don't have my notes in front of me. You're kind of catching <laughs> me here. But I'll give you one example uh, is that, you know, uh, publishers only care about platform. And that may be a, a myth that was, you know, probably has been out there for a while. But that's not not necessarily true. Platform is great. But really, more and more, especially in the fiction world, what they're looking for is can you write? And the, the emphasis that uh, what we tried to do at the art of writing, and we use the word art uh, specifically to really denote that there's a craftsmanship, just like anything that you get good at, whether it's a trade or it's some kind of skill, it takes work, it takes study, it takes practice. Yes, you have to have some kind of affinity for it and perhaps some talent, but raw talent isn't enough. There's there's something about this becoming a student of the craft, and we really try to stress that. So, so that myth that platform is all that matters is really not is not true, and and we try to 
you know, try to dispel that. Um, another myth would be something to the effect that, you know, uh, you know, an author, uh, you know, shouldn't uh, self-promote. You know, I mean, that's probably not said very well, but sometimes, you know, there's this thing, especially among authors, that well, I'll let my publisher do it. No, there, there is an aspect to to books being, uh, you know, brought into the public uh, that the author has to has to attend to. And what you're doing today, uh, podcasting, is is something that any author can do uh, to to bring awareness to what they're what they're about. But it has to be interesting, obviously, and something people want to listen to. So so this art of writing conference then leads right into that evening uh, to the Christie Award Gala, and it's really an open invitation. There are many many authors, obviously, who have been nominated. Also publishers, and and it's really open. So, so there, uh, if people want to go, just uh, christieawards.com and we'll get that to you, Thomas. But that will tell you about next year's event, which is already on the calendar for November uh, five and six in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, again, we just we just love having authors come in, and and it's a great time to just to learn, but also to network and to to just be around others in your profession. And it's really, it's, it's different than a writer's conference in that this, these are mostly professional authors. He either have been published or have self-published successfully who, who come to this conference. And there are many wonderful writer's conferences around the country. And obviously you, you probably talk about them that go on throughout the year. Uh, in fact, one of our, the MC for the, Chris, the, the Christie Award was Cynthia Rukti, who's been very involved in ACFW, uh, the American Christian Fiction Writers Association, which has a wonderful conference that they do, I think typically in late September. Um, and so Cynthia was our MC, and it's, so it's a nice bridge between what we're doing as a trade organization with professional writers and publishers and what's going on at writers' conferences and conferences like ACFW does. And you're starting to stream those awards. You know, we did this year. We, <laughs> here again, uh, clever, one of the authors who was actually nominated, Sarah Ella, and uh, she is lives in Phoenix, and we had contacted her uh, just uh, just a few months ago. And so she's been our social media butterfly. She's so good at that. I mean, great writer, and has done good work with Thomas Nelson, her series, um, and uh, for for young adult, she's a young adult fantasy series. But she is a great social media person, so she streamed it, and it was just wonderful. We heard from many people, including some authors that weren't able to attend. So we're we're trying to get better at that, but that's an important uh, uh, component of what it means to be in in the world of of writing and fiction writing and getting your name out there and being a part of that network. Fiction writers really support one another. That's a big difference we've noticed, Thomas, between fiction writers and nonfiction writers. Nonfiction, you're kind of you know in your own world, do your thing because you've got a job or you're doing something in a church or wherever. But fiction writers, they stick together and encourage one another and promote one another's work. It's really wonderful to see. Yeah, and and I have uh, very much seen that to be the case. I know my we were talking about this on my other podcast, Novel Marketing. Uh, my co-host is James L. Rubart, and he was nominated for Christie and wasn't able to attend, and so he had a watching party, uh, watching the live stream at his house. And of course, he was very excited to to see that he won. So <laughs> he wasn't there to give his acceptance speech, but uh, it 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 all worked out. Um, let's t- talk a little bit about indie authors. Uh, what are you, what, cause I know there's been this rise of indie authors, right? When ECPA was created 20 years ago, 
there wasn't a lot going on in the indie space. Now that's gotten a lot bigger. How has ECPA adapted for this kind of new world? Well, we our membership is still composed of what we would call traditional publishers. And here's the difference between traditional publishers and their new like hybrid or self-publishers. And that is traditional publishers don't take one dime from the author for anything. Uh, now, authors, again, are expected and encouraged to market and do those things. And you could say there's an expense attached to that. But the, when, it, when, a, when a publishing house or a self-publishing house or a service asks for any money from the author, they cease to be a traditional publisher by our definition. But there, there is great value and can be great value to working with, with hybrid publishers. You just have to be really careful because some are just – they're not going to do anything to improve the book or, or offer – uh, editorial unless you pay for it, but they'll publish your book anyway. But there are some there are some newer models that are coming up for authors themselves. It's never been easier to get published, whether you use CreateSpace or Lightning Source or other uh, services. You can uh, self-publish. My encouragement, though, to authors who do that is that you you need to invest in an editor. Um, that's one thing I think authors often think, well, I, I'm my best editor. No, you're not. Your best editor is going to be a professional that this is what they do. And to, to take your book and not just line edit or copy edit, but to actually in the concept of what you're doing. And yes, you, you have to pay for that, but it is so worth it. It's going to make it a better book. And that's the value if a publisher will take your book on, a traditional publisher. They bring that robust, seasoned editorial team to your uh, to your work, and they will make it a better book. I, I've used this term curate a couple of times in this podcast, Thomas. And curate, we sometimes think of it as museums will curate an exhibition. They'll bring the pieces together, say a bunch of dinosaur bones. If you put a bunch of dinosaur bones in a pile and put them in a room in a museum, nobody's going to be interested. But when you build something from it and say, this is a T-Rex and here's, you know, the, the climate where it lived and you do a backdrop and you set up an exhibit and you put out information and you've got an audio recording and now people will, will come to see it and they'll marvel at it. What's well, the same thing with, with a book? You know, you can have a bunch of words sitting in a pile, but <laughs> no one's going to read it if it's not been properly curated. And that means editorial and also, you know, to the, to the marketing side we've been talking about. But I would just encourage any self-publishers to to invest in that. Or if you go with a, a self-publishing uh, company, that you can get really good professional editing done. And it will just make the book better. And, and uh, uh, you know, the marketing is another thing with self-publishing. There are so many books now. It, it is hard to get noticed. But um, it's it's a world that didn't exist. I think it's great. Um, but it, it is uh, it's challenging, you know, and it's not as easy as it may sound to to get something published like that. Do you have any plans to add a membership level for independently published authors in the future? We've talked about it, Thomas. You're very perceptive in that. And uh, so far, uh, we have not. There is, um, on both sides, there's a Christian Small Press Association. And on the secular side, there's the Independent Book Publishers Association. So there are two groups already that will meet the needs of, of uh, self-published authors and those that use hybrid publishers. In fact, at a, at a high-level meeting that we sponsor every year for our uh, presidents and vice presidents of publishers who belong to ECPA, we invited the president of the Independent Book Publishers Association to come and speak to us. Her name's Angela Bull. And I, I am in touch with her. She does a great job. They have about 3,000 members. Many of them are authors. 
uh, individual authors who just publish themselves. And they do have some standards of how many books you need to publish to be a member, uh, not just one, but you can be self-published and, and, and be a member of that. So I'd encourage your listeners, it's, I think it's just independent book publishers or ibpa.com uh, or .org. You can probably, find, again, Google it and find it. Uh, but they offer a great, uh, you know, network of services. Uh, and and uh, But she understands. And our counterpart in the secular space is called the Association of American Publishers, or AAP. And they have the same uh, approach that we do, that they don't, at this point, have a membership that would include those hybrid publishers. But that's not to say in the future. I mean, it's ever evolving, Thomas. The one thing about publishing, it is in still in this state of, of change. And, uh, you know, we still don't know what that's going to look like. And, and one of those changes is audio. I mean, the number of, of people now listening to audio, it's mirrored by the number of people listening to podcasts because so many people are commuting and they're busy, but they can, you know, listen in through their phones and, and uh, get the latest information. And it's an enormously, it's, it's the fastest growing segment of publishing is audio. It's now at about, I think, 10%. Uh, and they predict it'll go up to 20 within just a few years and growing at a rate of 25% a year. I, I couldn't agree more. I will say a couple of years ago, I listened to 100 audiobooks. That same year, I read zero ebooks and I read zero paper books. So I am one of those people that if your book does not exist in audio form, I will not read it. Uh, I have moved completely because my life's so busy. Like I listen while I'm working out or while I'm uh, around the house or while I'm driving. And it allows me to turn my car into a library in a sense. And I'm able to listen the, uh, at high speed. And what kind of unlocked audiobooks was that we finally got out of the what I call the awkward adolescence of the compact disc. So CDs are superior to cassettes in terms of quality and in terms of listening to music, they're superior in every way. But as a book platform, they're actually inferior. A cassette can hold more minutes of audio than a CD. In fact, some cassettes towards the end, I think, could hold like two hours plus of audio, uh, three hours plus of audio, and you flip it to the other side. Uh, whereas a CD is limited to about 60 minutes, 70 minutes, depending on what CD format you're using. And the other thing, and this is really killer, is that a CD does not remember where you left off. So you could <laughs> right. take a cassette out of your car and put it in your Walkman back when we actually had Walkmans and pick up the book right where you left off. Whereas if you took a CD, you couldn't do that. And because the CDs held so little audio, books to really be on CD had to be abridged, which kind of ruined the magic for a lot of books. You know, bridging is nice and sometimes bridging is, is beneficial for nonfiction, but it just didn't have that sizzle. Well, now we have these smartphones where we have the not just one book in my pocket, but I've got a hundred books in my pocket and I can download any book that's available on the internet with just a couple of taps. And suddenly all of the problems of the compact disc are fixed and the cost of delivering the book is dropped dramatically because manufacturing a dozen CDs for an audiobook is very expensive. Right? There's a reason why audiobooks used to cost $30 and everyone would get them at the library because they couldn't afford to buy them themselves. <laughs> uh, but now, you know, with, with Audible, the, the people are expecting to pay more like $10 or $15 for an audiobook. And and wouldn't you agree too, uh, Thomas, that the quality and and the um, 
the way they're recorded and the voice actors they're getting. And I'm not just talking about like putting a show on, but one voice. I, I start looking for books by particular narrators that I really enjoy. I mean, that's something, and I know a lot of audio uh, aficionados do the same thing. If you find a guy that you like or a, a reader, a woman or a man that you like, you'll look for books by that reader because it's just, it makes such a difference uh, in terms of how that content is delivered. It does. I remember listening to Huckleberry Finn narrated by Elijah Wood. And the uh, I, and then another Mark Twain book that I listened to, it was uh, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And it was narrated by uh, the actor who played Ron Swanson in uh, Parks and Recreation, who's just a perfect actor because that kind of no-nonsense Yankee uh, style, which his character Ron Swanson portrayed, is exactly the same kind of style of Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And it's very, it was a very fun read. But there's the, even people who aren't like Hollywood celebrities, like Michael Kramer, um, I, I find myself looking like what, you know, epic fantasy book has he narrated recently because I've liked so many of his past books. It, and it creates another vector for your book to be discovered. If you if you invest in a good narrator, someone who's never heard of you as an author, if they like your narrator, they may give your book a shot uh, just because uh, they've discovered you that way. And, and many times an audio uh, re- uh, listen will lead to a purchase of the, of the physical book. I know, especially in nonfiction, if I'm listening, I'm listening to a book on leadership right now by Brene Brown called Dare to Lead. It's marvelous. She narrates it. So I really, I feel like I'm in touch with the author, but I'm going to get the book now because I can't underline, you know, my audio. <laughs> so I want to go back. And that's typical with nonfiction. Fiction, once I've listened to it, it's kind of done. Uh, but but nonfiction, it will often lead to the purchase of the of the physical book. And that's something else, Thomas, I think just, you're not asking this question, but I just find it fascinating. Millennials, by and large, prefer print. Uh, to uh, to ebooks to digital books, and there's a simple reason for that. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I've, I, it's not my theory. But millennials grew up on Harry Potter, and you think about the impact that that those books had on readers and developed that kind of that that taste for reading. But you never saw a kid, and even to this day, uh, you know, walking around with a little digital copy of Harry Potter. They've got that big volume under their arm proudly, right? <laughs> so there's there's an affinity for, and I think also that we're so bound up in technology in the rest of our lives. If we're going to get a book, uh, let's get something that's going to give me something I can put on my shelf. I want it to look nice. Uh, so there's we also have an award program called Top Shelf cover design. <laughs> so we we recognize great cover design. And even in a little one inch square on Amazon picture of your cover, it makes a difference. People like, you know, uh, beauty that extends to the physical book itself. So we recognize that and and give awards for it and designers. And, and it's kind of a big thing and, and in the secular world as well. So there's something to be said about the total package of a book and having that and touching and feeling it. And so print is not going away. As Mark Twain famously said, the the death of the reports of my death have been great, greatly exaggerated. So I think when they said that print books were going to go away and be replaced by digital, that was greatly exaggerated. And in fact, and you know this better than anybody, Thomas, that digital actually uh, books as a percentage of the total sales of books is kind of flattened. And in fact, maybe even declined just slightly uh, over the last couple of years. And so print is, is staying strong and, and uh, not going away. That's right. There, there are certain advantages that print has. And there are certain advantages that uh, ebooks have that appeal particularly to older readers. Uh, so part of the reason why ebooks are so popular with older readers, because the average age of a Kindle reader is like 65 years old, is because of that large print feature. 
So suddenly it's a book you don't need to wear your reading glasses. Uh, So, you know, you you get the book from Barnes & Noble, you have to put on your reading glasses to read it. It's a hassle. You got to go find them. But you get your Kindle and suddenly you don't need your reading glasses and your experience is improved, especially for fiction. Ebooks for nonfiction are difficult because people don't read nonfiction start to finish often, right? They're flipping around and they're, you know, highlighting and it's a very nonlinear experience. Uh, So for that, I, I definitely see paper holding on because... Um, just like I, I remember getting when I first got my Kindle when it first came out, I, one of the first book I bought was the Bible, and I was so excited. And I'm like, "Yes, I have the Bible on my Kindle!" And I started using it. I'm like, "This is a terrible experience <laughs> because you yeah. know how do you read the Bible? <laughs> you know, sometimes you know you read it start to finish, but typically you're like, I need to look up you know James two seven, and you're like, okay, to look up James two seven on a Kindle is a real hassle. It's much better experience on an iPhone or an iPad, and so um, or a Actual honest paper Bible. Yeah. <laughs> you just flip it, right? Yeah. Well, or the Bible apps like version is great because you can, uh, you know, you can just kind of access the verse you need, but it's just that verse. And yeah, so, but it's just, we're in a golden age of reading. It's, there's no question about it. It's, it's a challenge for publishers and, and authors to get known, to find traction with audiences. But boy, if you're a reader, it's just couldn't, you couldn't imagine a better time to be able to access any book, anytime to get it, whether it's in print or audio or, or digital and to have it as soon as you need it. I mean, literally with that, if you have a reading device like a Kindle, you can have that book in 30 seconds. You know, who would have thought that was possible? You know, even 20 years ago, we just didn't had no idea that that could be delivered in such a way. So it's it's pretty amazing. And, and if you're an author listening, you know, uh, it's it's a great time to be writing, but it's also challenging to get heard and to be recognized because of so many titles and options for readers that are out there. That's right. You would think that we have talked about all of the things that the ECPA offers for authors. And we're pretty much out of time, but very briefly, I have to ask you about the Christian Book Expo because that's another big piece of what you offer. So what is the Christian Book Expo? Well, that was actually named for a convention in Dallas or a book uh, get together in Dallas with publishers and authors about 10 years ago. And we've kind of kept the name. Frankly, Thomas, we're thinking we're, we've, we've bought the URL for read good books. And we think that it probably would be something that would have more meaning for people. But it's, it's basically to show what is selling, what's been awarded, um, you know, what's the latest on the different categories of, of books. So that ChristianBookExpo.com is a very useful site. We would like to take this more to where readers are. And of course, for Christians, one of the best places is in the church. And so we're trying to connect over these next year or two to connect to uh uh, pastors, uh, pastors can be a great influence on what people read, especially in nonfiction. And so we're we're looking to expand this and to uh, to make it accessible for for everyone. But again, if, if for authors, it's a great resource because you see what people are reading and what's selling, and what has been awarded, so that it kind of gives you an idea of of you know what kind of book you'd want to write. So we we try to you know try to keep that updated, and, and it is it's updated every month. In fact. The list that's up there now is is we just put up there the last couple of days for uh, for November. Yeah, that's, that's really good, and that is another trend: is the church as bookstore. So a lot of big churches now, you walk into the church and there's a coffee shop and a bookstore. <laughs> so on your way into the sanctuary, you have to walk through a bookstore, often with an actual person selling books, and that is a bookstore that often has a very small selection of highly curated books. Often, you know that the staff of the church and often the senior pastors of the church specifically selected and uh, that's a huge having a huge impact on the industry 
because the decision makers are shifting around. And suddenly, you know, a pastor recommending a book used to be valuable, but now it's super valuable because not only does he recommend your book, but he puts it on the shelf of his own personal bookstore uh, that his, you know, 10,000 congregants walk past every Sunday on their way to church. I mean, that's a, that's a really powerful um, position in the industry. Uh, so uh, where can people uh, find out more about you? Well, uh, good question. I'm actually in the process of re- rebuilding my own uh, website, so it's down right now, uh, and um, and so it'll come back. You'll have to have me back on so I can tell you. But uh, if you go to if you go to uh, ecpa.org, there's a, a segment there about our you know about us, and there's a little bio about me. But uh, uh, you know, really, I'm uh, and you can look up my books uh, that I've co-written with Bruce Bickle just on Amazon. So just look up through Stan Jantz and you'll see the different uh, titles. Not every one of those 75 is still in print, but a good, good many are. And we've written primarily, in fact, exclusively in nonfiction and really taking uh, difficult theological concepts and putting them on the lower shelf. So kind of a little bit of a user-friendly approach, but, uh, but it's been, a, it's been good. And I, so I've, grew up in a in a home where we owned and operated a chain of Christian retail bookstores and I've worked for publishing houses and now working with ECPA and then writing for the last 20 years it's been a it's been a privilege and I I don't take it for granted and I just I love books I love writers and uh you know do everything we can to support the because without writers books would not exist I mean that sounds like the obvious question but uh it's 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 so important and I think a new generation of writers is emerging uh, the memoir has become a very popular way of expressing truth and and uh, through experience. And millennials, if there's anything uh, that I've learned, is they don't want to be told, they want to be shown. And so just to be this didactic, you know, here's the Christian life and one, two, three easy steps. That's probably never been a good idea, but we sure ran with that for, <laughs> for a, lot, a lot of years. But it's really more now is living out the realities of what it means to be a Christian in a, in a difficult world. And what, you know, where are those bright spots of, of God, what he's doing? And uh, I try to, you know, vary my reading widely. And uh, it, it's, it's exciting to see some of the things that are, are, are coming out of uh, Christian publishing that uh, I think is, are, are very valuable and are more real and probably more authentic than what we've seen in, in quite some time. So that's my story. I'm sticking with it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for everything that you do for authors and for coming on the Christian Publishing Show today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thomas, for having me. Thank you for listening to the Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.